Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Let us, without further ado, go straight to Pauline Latham, Conservative MP for Mid-Derbyshire. Pauline, very good morning to you. Morning. I have to say my heart uh, sank slightly this morning when I saw the front page of The Times in which it says lockdown lifting set to be delayed by a fortnight. Um, I mean, it seems to me that we've got two conflicting stories going on here. We've got that one. uh, Plus, we've got the Matt Hancock uh, suggestion that basically um, admissions to intensive care have more or less dropped to nothing. Um, Death rates have dropped pretty low as well. And the infection rates only seem to be affecting people who haven't had the vaccine. Yeah, I think what's really interesting is we now hear about the death rates, but it says within 28 days of having um, tested positive for corona. It doesn't say they've died from coronavirus. Right. It says they've died with it. So we're not actually even certain how many of the deaths over the last few months have been from COVID. So I think as there were only, I think, one yesterday, and for the day before, I mean, that is so low. Now, obviously, I don't want anybody to die, but death is part of life. Yes. But I want to know is how many people are dying from cancer or heart attacks who aren't getting the treatment because people are not available to treat them because they're dealing with COVID. And those people, we should be looking at those now. COVID has been terrible, and we've all put up with it. But I think enough is enough, and we need to be allowed out to have a proper life. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Because if you to, if you do sort of follow this mantra of data, not dates, you know, mm. the data surely is showing that it's, 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 it's a lot better than it was and there's absolutely no reason to not go forward as you planned on June the 21st. Yes, I mean, I'm sure lots of people would like to go on holiday, whether it's in this country or elsewhere. But if we cannot release people from the, the final phases of the um, roadmap, this, Boris Johnson talks about it being irreversible. We must continue with it because unless there's a big spike, um, we cannot be frightened of another variant that might appear at some point in the future. We can't do that. We've got to live life now. And for those people coming towards the latter years of their life, they don't have many years left and they actually want to go out and see friends and family and do normal things, and that's just not being allowed yet. Mm. And that is the thing. I mean, we get people on the one hand saying, well, of course, you know, the lockdown's not really that bad now. Uh, You can surely put up with it for another couple of weeks. But for an awful lot of businesses that I talk to, Pauline, and you'll be the same in your constituency, you know, two weeks is a lifetime, and a month would be more, even more ridiculous. It would. And, you know, hospitality businesses have suffered enough, but wedding businesses have had virtually no business for 15, 16 months. They are desperate to get open. And you don't plan a wedding and open it up in a week or two. It can be two, three years before people have the weddings. And we've already seen them postponed. 
and therefore the next stage is that they'll be booked. But people are frightened of booking because the, because of this uncertainty. Although Boris said it was a, a roadmap and we'd stick to it, all this uncertainty that's being put out by ministers and by PH uh, England and all the NHS people, it's giving so much uncertainty to business. And the, the one thing after all this time is they desperately need certainty. Well, that's right. And I always say to people, you know, never mind the people who want to go on holiday, uh, who sometimes are criticised because people go, well, why would you want to go on holiday? Well, people want to go on holiday because they've been locked in their houses for almost a year. They've been unable to go anywhere. They might feel a bit stressed out or they might have been working rather hard. We were hearing this morning that lots of NHS workers are feeling uh, as if they're burned out. Well, what do you think would suit them uh, now? A holiday would be rather nice in Portugal, which wouldn't be bad. But of course, now you can't go there. No, it's. I mean, it just seems that there were so few cases in Portugal, it was overreaction to sh- to make people dash home before four o'clock this morning. And I think we've got to let people get out. Mm. And we've got to let them have holidays. I mean, I've got a situation where I've got a brother lives in Spain. He's got dementia and he's getting to the point where he won't remember me no. unless I go and see him. But right. I'm not allowed to. Right. And I haven't seen him. I mean, we do Zoom things. But he doesn't really understand that. Right. He has to it's not the same, is it? I mean, you know, it's much as I enjoy that. talking to you on Zoom, Pauline, it's not yeah. the same as being in the yeah. same room. No, and he, he feels that. And I want to see him again before he forgets who I am. And I can't do that. And I'm not going to be the only person in that sort of situation. I'm desperate to go out there, but I can't. Mm. And, and lots of people will feel like that. Even if they don't go away in this country, they want to travel and they, they want to get away and, and sit on those beaches. Mm. I mean, as you say, NHS stuff, that would just do them so much good to have a couple of weeks sitting on a beach. Yeah. It would re- reduce the stress and make them feel much better. Of course it would, absolutely. Plus, it's normality. You know, it's normal life that people crave. You know, and it's yeah. not abnormal to want to go on holiday. It's not abnormal to want to take your children, uh, you know, away for, for a week or two in the sunshine <laughs> where they can play around on the beach. And where I saw pictures of Mallorca Beach yesterday. Um, in sorry, a beach in Mallorca, completely deserted. It looks mm. bizarre. There's nobody there. It is bizarre, and you know the, the businesses out there need need us, need our money just as much as businesses in this country need it because we are travellers by um, the fact that we live in England, we're in an island, and we like to move about more than many other countries. So, you know, I'm great that we're doing so well in holidays in this country, and I'm sure. It's doing those businesses which have been closed down no end of good. But hospitality isn't just at the seaside. Hospitality is right across the country. But it's airlines as well. I, I mean, I've got Rolls-Royce Aero Engines locally mm. to me. They are struggling because nobody's flying. And they make their money out of servicing the planes that fly. But of course, they haven't been in for a year. So, you know, there's all sorts of businesses are struggling and really do need to get back to normality. And it's summer when we're outside so much more. Last summer, there were hardly any deaths. Yes, they peaked in the winter, but we've got the vaccine now. Nobody talks about it being the vaccine that's saving us. And yet at the beginning, they said, let's let's vaccinate the first nine groups. Well, we've done that. Yes. We've, we've doubled on that now. So why can't we open up? 
Although, bizarrely, Matt Hancock is one of those people who says continually that the jabs are working, uh, that we have yes. clearly got uh, this uh, coronavirus thing beaten. And then some other uh, bod pops up, usually Chris Whitty or Sir Patrick Valance, who say, oh, yeah, but, you know, what about what's going on over there? There's an Indian variant or there's a Delta variant or there's some other variant and there might be another variant we don't know about. Well, there might be all kinds of things that we don't know about. You know, you can't actually legislate for what you don't know. You can't. Um, we have to stop doing that and stop frightening people. People don't have to go out if they don't want to. But those of us who would like to go out and do normal things should be allowed to now mm. because we cannot keep frightening the population to staying at home forever. No, of course not. And also the other side of the tourism coin, Pauline, for me, uh, is the, the companies in this country uh, who are suffering because there's no tourism incoming because yeah. parts of this country rely completely on it. For example, places like the Peak District, places like um, Scotland, even places like Wales. I mean, I've seen a tweet this morning uh, from a guy in Scotland who says, sadly, he's lost his job in golf tourism due to the lack of incoming visitors. It really is a sad state of affairs for my friends and colleagues within the industry. Because if you yeah. think about it, I mean, we're, I think we're told there's 21 million pounds a day that we're losing out on because there's yeah. nobody coming from America to pl either play golf or to stagger around Windsor or to, you know, have tea in Cornwall. You know, yeah. there simply and, is no tourism and, business at all. And London, if you look out of the windows, there's no traffic. There's nobody walking about. There's hardly anywhere. There's a lot of cyclists going to work, but mm. there's hardly any tourists walking about because they're not here. No. That, that's devastating for the whole tourism industry in London, which relies so much on overseas people. Yeah. It really is quite extraordinary. A couple of things to mention to you. We're going to be talking about these a bit later on uh, in the show, of course, as well. Um, but the business of um, the England Cricket Board going after young men who may have made uh, rather ridiculous tweets when they were teenagers, I see that they've now found another one um, who may have been doing what Ollie Robinson did, only this time when he was 15. I mean, it seems as though we've found ourselves a new rabbit hole to dive into. Yes, I mean, why don't we just sort of tell people who are five that have access to phones that, you know, we'll get them later when they're old. I mean, it's ridiculous because we cannot say that what, what they tweeted at 15 is what they think now. It's highly unlikely. And if they haven't done it since then, or they've apologised for it because they were young. And, you know, how many people at 15 don't make mistakes? Mm. That's how you learn. And this is the learning curve for them. And, and people have to recognise that Social media does haunt them, but, you know, 15, for goodness sake, mm. they were kids, they weren't adults. If they'd done that as an adult, fine, you know, discipline them, but not for something that happened when they were little. No, I think that's right. And I just want to ask your opinion as well on um, the news that just broke before we spoke to you, Pauline, about Wayne Cousins, police officer, who's pleaded guilty to the kidnap and rape of Sarah Everard today in the Old Bailey. He's also admitted... Uh, to basically killing her. He hasn't entered a plea on that yet. Um, but I suppose from the family's point of view, um, this might avoid a rather long and drawn-out trial. I hope so, because, you know, that must be so hard for families in that situation. It's bad enough to lose a child, but, but to lose one in those circumstances, when you're not with them, you don't know really quite what happened to them, how they were. It must be devastating. It must be one of the worst things in the world for the parents and the rest of the family, who will live with that for the rest of their lives. I mean, I hope that it does give them some peace that he's admitted to it and we don't have to go through a long rigmarole of having to prove it. Because sometimes these court cases go on for years and years and it, 
it's just a knife in the wound for the parents and family. Yes, and and speaking of which, um, the Alberto Costa is is uh, going to be on with us later on today. Uh, he's obviously uh, very very upset at this news about Colin Pitchfork, the, the double murderer uh, from his constituency who murdered two schoolgirls. I mean, it's hard to believe the parole board think that this guy is releasable, isn't it? Well, I think so. Um, I think we need to take another look at what's happening with parole boards because I don't believe that they always make the right decision. And I think with something as horrific as this, the poor girls, I mean, he should not be let out, um, not even for day release in my view, because somebody that's done that twice, not, not once, yeah. but twice, I just don't believe will ever be rehabilitated. No, I don't think so. And it appears that he, he's been out shopping. It appears that he's been released on several occasions to, to, to go outside of the prison walls. Um, but it's almost like there's two different mindsets going on, isn't there? There's, there's the people who work in prison reform and people who work in sort of, you know, victim support. And then there's people who work on behalf of those who have offended. And, you know, there doesn't seem to be any common language going on, you know, because, as you say, somebody who commits that kind of violent crime, I'm not sure you could ever be rehabilitated from that. No, I mean, I do agree. We should be trying to rehabilitate everybody in prison, but there are certain categories where I just find it very hard to believe that they have found any sort of remorse and can be trusted, which is actually what it's about. Mm. They may have found remorse, but can they ever be trusted out there with the public and with other young girls, teenagers, who they will have access to because people walk about and he would be walking about. So I, I do feel strongly, I would certainly back Roberta Costa because we can't let these people out. No, exactly right. And finally, Pauline, just back to the um, uh, the lockdown situation. How is, how is it in your neck of the woods in terms of how um, people are behaving? Because in parts of London, certainly, it does seem as though many people have kind of just moved on themselves and decided, right, mm. we're just going to go out a lot more. The weather's pretty nice. Um, you know, we're going to go and sit outside a bar, sit outside a cafe, sit outside a restaurant. Um sit in a park, you know, go to the beach. The beaches were busy at the weekend. I mean, yeah. I'm quite encouraged by that. Yeah, I am. I mean, locally, we haven't had any deaths for a while. Um, the hospitals hardly have a COVID patient in them. Mm. So, you know, it's pretty safe in Derbyshire. Um, I mean, there's, there's always been the odd little place where a school might have a bit of an up, uptick in, in cases, but it's gone down so much compared with this time last year. Mm. I think we are pretty safe and we should be letting people out. And, yes. You know, mental health is talked about a lot, but it's true. People are getting frustrated and angry at not being able to do what they would like to do. Not not extreme things, just being normal. And they just want to go out and about. And yeah. I, I feel the same, to be frank. I hate all of this. I hate the mask wearing. And people will social distance in certain situations, but not in all of them. No. But if they're outside, does it matter? No, exactly it, right. It doesn't, it doesn't spread it outside. Mm. And as Julie Hartley Brewer said to George Eustace this morning, you know, caution is all very well, but it's mm. not cautious for everybody to do it this way because it's actually dangerous for a lot of people. Mm. I mean, I, I've had two vaccines five weeks ago, my second. I feel completely safe. Mm. Now, probably I'm not completely safe. If I came up against the Indian variant and I caught it, I might be ill, but I don't think I'd die. There's a pretty Even... good chance that you wouldn't be very ill, though. 
No, exactly, because it's, they've proved that the vaccine is working. And either they've got to say the vaccine's working, therefore we're going to do the fourth step and let people out, or the vaccine isn't working and we've got to think again. But they're not saying that because they are agreeing that the vaccine works. And, and if the vaccine works, then surely we should all be working as well. Not from yes. home either. Pauline, thank you very much indeed. Pauline Latham, Conservative MP uh, for Mid Derbyshire, talking a great deal of sense, as indeed uh, do most of our guests. Not all uh, of them do, but most of them. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now let's talk to Nick Freeman, criminal defence lawyer, author and commentator, also known, of course, as Mr Loophole, because even as we're about to talk about this petition that we've got going uh, in front of Parliament, which we want them to discuss, um, there's stories of e-scooters being used by drunken people, uh, crashes uh, fuelled by booze. We've got all sorts of studies now being done into how dangerous these things are. Uh, We've got people in Liverpool asking for the studies to be halted and and the trials to be halted. Nick, a very good morning to you. Good morning, mate. This seems to be a very timely petition because just as these trials have begun, uh, it seems as though the focus of an awful lot of people's minds is on these e-scooters. Well, well, Mike, yes, good fortune. Um, We managed to launch it yesterday, the 7th of June. Yes. Um, As you all know, is the day that um, the trial periods in, I think, six or seven boroughs of London started Mm. for e-scooters. So timely indeed. It tends to focus the mind, doesn't it? And uh, there's one very common point that relates to e-scooters and cyclists. And that's uh, who's driving at any one time. And until we deal with that, um, the the laws that currently exist are are largely redundant. So you and I have got together to try and make the laws more relevant and really to try and create harmony on the roads. This this isn't a, a war or a battle against anyone. This is to try and help us coexist happily together so that motorists, cyclists, scooter riders, we all feel that the roads are there to assist us and to help us and Mm. to try and take the stress out of the roads. Um, So, as you know, we've launched this petition um, to petition the government to actually draft some legislation that's relevant and appropriate. And the starting point is, of course, making sure that we know at any one time who is on an e-scooter and who is on a cyclist, because unfortunately, I mean, there are different problems that exist mm. with both. Um, but until we actually grasp that nettle uh, and, and be sure that we know who is cycling or e-scootering, um, then the, the laws don't really touch the problem. And I think one, once you actually make somebody accountable, they then they, they become responsible. I mean, can you imagine taking the registration plate off motorists mm. and, say, and saying, look, you, 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 you drive around in your car with no means really of knowing who you are. I think people's driving will be very different yes. and they would be tempted to drive irresponsibly. And, and that's the situation that currently exists. So um, with cyclists and e-scooters, the, the starting point is let, let's know who it is. Let's have a system that in the, in the same way um, relates to motorists, that a member of the public, if, if, for example, you see a cyclist cycling on the pavement going through red lights, um, they can be filmed, that can be downloaded, the police can prosecute because they will know how to trace that person. And to give it teeth insofar as cyclists, um, we need relevant legislation. The e-scooters, um, the, the, re- the legislation actually is exactly the same as motor vehicles. Mm. So there's no problem there. There, there are penalty points, there's um, drink driving limits, etc., etc. The problem is finding out who it is. Mm. With cyclists, there, there isn't a penalty point system. There's no disqualification. The legislation is woefully inadequate. There isn't actually a speeding limit for cyclists. Um, there isn't actually a drink drive limit. There is an offensive driving whilst unfit. 
So what, what I'm suggesting with, with you is to petition the government so that they will draft proper legislation, a penalty point system, uh, disqualification if you continue to commit offences, um, and obviously, the, the, to, to basically to have one rule for the road that applies to everybody. Yes. That, that's the simple way of putting it. Well, exactly. And that's, and that's the fair way to approach all of these things. Because once it, again, it to me, it's a little bit like the asylum seeker laws. You know, they were designed a very long time ago uh, to, uh, to, to deal with something which is now very, very different. In the same way that the road laws were designed a very long time ago, sometimes when before even cars were actually in use. And so we need to have a revamp clearly of all of the laws and the access that people have because even as we speak in Liverpool for example uh, they've set up a trauma network group because of all the injuries that people have been suffering since they introduced the, the new trial scheme uh, just a few days ago uh, this this operation I don't know whether you've seen this study from the the Charité University Medicine in Berlin um, has looked at 11,000 um, accidents that have taken place uh, in their sort of, you know, uh, uh, sphere of influence because people have accidents in them because they go very fast, you can't see them, you don't know who's on them, you know, pedestrians get hit all the time. It's a really dangerous situation. They're incredibly dangerous. I think pe people are very cavalier about them because they think actually um, that the law doesn't apply. I can get on an e-scooter and, and I'm free. It's a wonderful feeling. I'm free. I mean, there's an inherent problem with the design of e-scooters, and that's the wheels are too small. Um, and you don't need to take any proficiency tests. What you now need to do in London, and this doesn't apply for the rest of the country, is you have to do an online course. But what you actually need is to practice on one to just understand how unstable they are, the difficulties with indication, for example. Yeah. There's only one manufacturer actually has um, indicators as part of the e-scooter. For all the others, you have to take a hand off the e-scooter and signal either left or right mm. on something that's all already precariously balanced. Yes. So, so the, the refute, and of course then, you know, you're advised to wear a helmet, but it's not mandatory. So in, in this weather, people are definitely not going to wear helmets and, and tragically there's going to be terrible head injuries as mm. a consequence of that. Mm. So th th this isn't a game. And when you think that, that they're being enrolled in, in six boroughs at the moment, another borough, I think, on uh, in a few weeks' time, City of London delayed it slightly. Yeah. There's going to be masses of these hitting the road. Uh, and we all need to know how to coexist because, you know, drivers... They have to concentrate on cyclists. They're now going to have um, e-scooters coming up on the inside, the near side, the offside. They're going to be going to the front of the traffic. They're not going to be heard. They're going to be cutting across. So this is something that everyone needs to, to address. It's not particularly one, one group of people that mm. this affects. Drivers, of course, need to learn how to deal with these and, and, and to exercise even more caution. And then, of course, with, with the e-scooters, and I don't want to just target those, that there's the problem of crime. And mm. I've heard anecdotally, and I had a friend who called me two days ago to say that she'd actually been robbed going into a hotel, a handbag snatched by an e-scooter, illegal e-scooter, obviously, because it was before yesterday, mm. um, just snatched, gone, that was it, the end of the handbag. Um, this is going to become a perennial problem and they're going to get away, aren't they, scot-free? Yeah, well, you know, um, I, I, I had my kids up in London last weekend, my holiday weekend, and I said to them for the first time, I think, ever, um, don't get your phones out while we're walking around because there's these kids on scooters all over the West End, all over places like Knightsbridge, Hyde Park, you know, and they will just snatch it and, and take off and there's nothing you can do. Well, I don't understand, Mike, you know, Greater London's a large area. The Met tell us that they seize four e-scooters a day. Really? Now, why don't they have an operation where they say it's going to be e-scooter seizure day? 
and go in. There are thousands of unlawful e-scooters mm. on the street. The only ones that are lawful are, are, are from those pilot schemes, yeah. of which there are very few. So why don't they put some bobbies on the beat and seize and destroy all these illegal e-scooters? Now, the maximum speed of these e-scooters is 68 miles an hour. Mm. You know, they're in- incredibly dangerous. They're unlawful. There's no insurance and the riders aren't accountable. So one day, way of dealing with it uh, until the, the, the relevant law comes in is for the police to actually be proactive um, education isn't going to be sufficient and actually put the bobbies on the street mm. and every e-scooter that you see that's unlawful you seize it that's yes. it because they shouldn't be there and of course then there's penalty points that follow from that you know there'll be probably six penalty points from that um, because there's no insurance there'll be a heavy financial penalty and there would be forfeiture of the e-scooter mm. now that that's a heavy price to pay and if the police were seen to do that I think that will be a huge deterrent. They'd only need to do it for a short period mm. of time for people to think, actually, I'm taking a huge and very expensive risk here. Yes. But at the moment, the, you know, four e-scooters a day, it, it's, it's a joke. It's an insult, I'm afraid, to the taxpayer. It's not even paying lip service to the problem. No, exactly right. I mean, I see at least 20 uh, on any journey that I take, you know, anywhere, uh, walking around or, or even if, if I'm in a car. But since I launched this petition with you, Um, Nick, it's been interesting. I've had lots of people sending me little videos of places like Birmingham where there's a problem where people are going up, the the e-scooters are are going up on the pavements. They're sort of cutting across traffic. They go across zebra crossing. You don't even know quite which way they're going. They're going against the traffic, going with the traffic, as you say, in in all sorts of different ways. But I also had quite a few cyclists talking to me about how useless the cycle lanes are because one of my bugbears is that an awful lot of cyclists don't use the cycle lanes for which the roads have now been designed, they say yeah. it's because they're full of debris uh, and they don't want to get yeah. a puncture. Yeah, they're debris and full of potholes and they're, and they're dangerous for the cyclists. So the, the, the government obviously needs to it needs to invest them. We, we always keep talking about this because yeah. our roads, the motorist roads are horrendous as well. Um, but, but there needs to be, in my view, cycle lanes should be mandatory. It shouldn't be a choice for a cyclist. I'm going to use the road today because I don't fancy the cycle lane. They, they have to use them. And the, the, the motorist, the cyclist need to lobby the government and say, we, we need to make these cycle lanes. If they're going to be mandatory, they mm. need to be safe. So mm. we need to make them fit for purpose. Uh, and then the cyclist might be persuaded to use them. Um, so, you know, that, that's one of the things, along with um, helmets, high-vis jackets, some form of identification, yes. and, then, and then the same rules as apply to the motorists. Yes, well, let's come, we... let's come to that, because people will also ask the question, exactly how will this identification work? I mean, I think you and I have discussed this in the past, and, and we've kind of agreed that it doesn't necessarily have to be on the vehicle, rather than it should be on the person on the vehicle. I, I think the, the simplest way and the easiest way, because of lack of space logistics, is that every time you are on a, an e-scooter or on a cycle, you wear a high-vis tabard with a, a, a registration mm. number on it that, that can identify you so that a member of the public, um, if you're seen to commit an, an offence, can see you. Um, and I do appreciate that, you know, some people are going to be tempted to just fake a registration number, but it, it's in the same way that they do with number plates. Yeah. But that, that needs to happen. And then if someone commits an offence, for example, you know, cycling on the pavement, going through red lights, it's something that cyclists just feel, well, that's their, their prerogative. Yeah. They're, they're entitled to do that. I don't mm. think many cyclists actually realise it's an offence. Mm. Then at least that, that can be recorded and there, there should be on the face of it a means of tracing the cyclist. Um, and the public can play a part in that. They can play a role in that. Um, so, but, 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 but without that, you know, unless the cyclist is stopped or an e-scooter is stopped, then it, it just isn't going to happen. And also consider, particularly in the warm weather, 
um, how many cyclists and e-scooters are driving with, with, unfortunately, drugs in their system and alcohol in their yeah. system. It's a huge number that, that just is not being touched. Yes. And well, I think moment, some of them might be, uh, even be delivering drugs as well, Nick. Well, uh, <laughs> well I, I don't think, Mike, I'm, I'm 100% sure you're right. So, you know, it, as I said, that there is no law um, for cyclists. Um, there's no, no limit for, for drugs or drink. The, the limit is whether or not they're unfit. Well, I've never heard of a cyclist being tested for being unfit through drink or drugs. It just simply doesn't happen. We need to introduce a limit and we need to introduce, as currently exists for e-scooters, and we've heard of a few cases recently, if you're caught driving whilst over the prescribed limit, you're off the road for at least 12 months, there's a heavy fine, et cetera, et cetera. It's got some teeth. For cyclists at the moment, it, it's, you know, it just doesn't really exist. As far as the authorities are concerned, it's not a problem because there's no law to support mm. them. Right. I've got a good idea here from Philip in Gosport, who's texted into 87222. He says electric scooter and bicycle licenses could provide huge income to councils, both through licensing and traffic violations. If you sell it that way, all the Labour councils will support it. It's not a bad idea, oh. that. Well, there has to be a financial contribution by cyclists for cycle lanes, That, in, in my view. We all need, I'm not suggesting it's the same as motorists, but yes, there needs to be a license, there needs to be a proficiency test, and there needs to be that financial contribution. Mm. Um, we, we, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch, is there? So we all need to put our hands in our pocket uh, and use that money to make the road safer and to, to, to repair them. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Again, the arguments that I get from cyclists are, well, you know, the thing is we already pay lots of tax like everybody else does and many of us have cars, so we're already paying road tax. That's not the point. Uh, as you say, if, if the government and, and local government in particular is spending a fortune, and as, as Sadiq Khan certainly is in London, remaking the road system, uh, then those who are benefiting from that should pay. Yeah, this is a different system, isn't it? This, yeah. is, this is a different activity that requires independent financial support. You know, the motorists don't gain from having their lanes removed and given to the cyclists. So, you know, fine, if that's got to happen, and it's got to happen sensibly, it's got to happen with consultation. It's very important in my view that the government, there's no immediate reaction from councils as there has been in the past, but there is sensible consultation with representatives of everybody, every group, so that, you know, the idea is to coexist in harmony. It, this isn't a war. It's very important that w when this petition was launched that we, we're trying to be positive so that everybody who uses the road is a winner. This isn't a battle against any particular group. This is a, a coordinating sensible minds to make the roads better for everybody. And, and I don't think any, any particular group should see this as a war against them. It's not anti-anything. It's supporting road safety mm. and trying to make the system work better. At the moment, we don't coexist well, and that needs to change. And, you know, we hate change, don't we? Everyone hates change. Cyclists have been used to having the, the, the freedom without contribution and without law. Um, and, you know, when there was a tiny minority, that, that was understandable. But now it, it's a serious problem mm. because they're taking the roads away from motorists. Yeah. So with that, with that extra um, room, there comes extra responsibility. Uh, and financial contribution and extra law and and then it will work it will work as well as it can yes um, and, and that's, i think that's certainly i mean certainly what what we wish to happen is for enough signatures to be put on this petition uh, to ensure that the matter is discussed in the houses of parliament 
and that's yeah. what really should be happening now because it's at that point isn't it nick where we need it we need to have a debate about it properly well well if you think about it mike you know the the law is really anachronistic in mm. relation to cyclists uh, it needs to be brought up to date massively it, it it isn't out of date for e-scooters but it's redundant because we don't know who's riding at any one time mm. uh, and and now we're opening up the roads to all these new forms of transport which are welcome because obviously they have a, a very beneficial green effect we need the law in situ so that everyone can do it safely uh, and in a healthy environment. Yes. Um, so what do people do uh, in order to find this petition to sign it? Well, um, for, for me, you, you know, if you, uh, you, if you go onto my Twitter account at Mr. Loophole or my office account, or um, I'm sure you've got, you, you've got many more followers than me, Mike. I've got, I've got it out there on my Twitter and also on my yeah. Facebook page as well. Yeah. Well, I've got it on my firm's Freeman & Co's Facebook and I've also got it on my Twitter. It's at Mr. Loophole. We need at least 100,000 signatures. I think within the first hour last night, there were over 500 on there. Okay. Um, so, you know, I think from, from certainly anecdotally from speaking to friends who, who are sensible, everyone wants to try and get this moving so that there is a sensible debate in government about how we can improve our roads and make them fit for everybody yes. and not, not just for a minority or, or, or a majority. But that majority is small because more and more people want to participate safely in alternative forms of transport. E-scooters is one, cycling is another, but it has to be safe. Mm. Um, and if it's not safe, people aren't going to be tempted to join in. If we have safe cycle lanes you know there's probably no better way of going to work than on, on a cycle as long as you know it's safe and legally compliant yeah as long as it's not pouring with rain when, when of course it's not oh, particularly yeah. it's not particularly good we're, we're at, at the start of a beautiful summer and we're just about to have a slightly delayed but unlock of lockdowns so let's hope so the time is bright all right nick great, great, great to talk to you again thank you very much indeed nick freeman there criminal defense lawyer author and commentator also known as mr loophole uh, also co-author with me uh, of this petition we need to have this discussed because there's no doubt, and lots of you are getting in touch here. Uh, Ross from Shybrook says, regarding a scooter, uh, e-scooters and bikes, not long ago the government was banging the drum about serious problem about obesity. So what did they do? Discourage people from walking and put e-scooters and bikes on the streets. You couldn't make it up. Uh, he's talking about electric bikes, of course. And Peter Hitchens is very big on this. He talks about the fact that these e-scooters are a menace, but also they are not in any way healthy because you don't do anything. You just stand on a platform and move. You might as well be in a car takes up less room, but it's much, much more dangerous, not only for you, but for pedestrians who can't hear you, uh, for road users who can't see you, uh, and for people who have no clue which way they are going. It's absolutely outrageous. Mixing in uh, scooters now with the bike problem in this country is madness, isn't it? One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. So let's talk now, though, to Dr. Rakeem Bassan, independent expert in British public attitudes. We've got a lot to talk to him about, not least uh, this ridiculous and ludicrous idea that the parole board thinks a great idea to release Colin Pitchfork, who raped and strangled two 15-year-old girls in what are described as very sadistic attacks in the 1980s. Rakeem, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. I saw that you were uh, tweeting out about this yesterday when the news broke. It does seem extraordinary that the parole board hasn't learned from the War Boys situation where, you know, they decided that this guy, the uh, taxi rapist, the black cab rapist, was, was better now. And not only despite the fact that he still had all the names and addresses of his victims, uh, that he was safe to be let out. That was the decision was eventually reversed. Um, what about this one? I think this decision is absolutely remarkable, Mike, if, if truth be told. We're talking about a man who raped and murdered two 15-year-old schoolgirls. Yeah. And I do feel that the parole board, in this case, through its decision uh, to approve Colin Pitchfork's release, it's failed to prioritise public safety. Mm. And I think all too often you have these uh, decisions being made by public authorities, which are completely out of line with mainstream public opinion on matters of community safety and public security. Uh, and uh, of course, we have this discussion about you know, what should be the balance between rehabilitation and punishment, but we're talking about someone who's convicted of the most heinous of crimes, really are. Yeah, and uh, absolutely dreadful. And I really hope, Mike, that the Justice Secretary, Robert Buckland, he uses all the powers at his disposal to intervene in the matter with a view of blocking the parole board's decision mm. to approve the release of Colin Pitchfork. Yes. I mean, I guess to some extent it depends on how far down the track it is. I see mm. in a couple of the papers this morning they've got pictures of him out and about because he's already been on day release to prepare himself uh, for his next day of freedom. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I think, I think it's absolutely diabolical. If truth be told, I think in my view, Mike, I made it I've made it very clear that someone who kills children in this case, rapes and uh, mur raped and murdered two 15 
who rolled schoolgirls. It should be a proper life sentence. Some people would want a lot more, Mike, yes. if truth be told. I think that if you, if you were to ask the, the British public, you'd have a notable uh, number of uh, people in the UK who'd be quite supportive of the death penalty, to be honest, to be awarded for those kind of crimes. Yeah. But in the absence of such a punishment, uh, it really should be the case that someone who has been convicted of such crimes should die in prison. Mm. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And that's the other kind of complication to this case, isn't it? Because if he was sentenced today with what would be regarded, I suppose, as an indeterminate sentence, that's what would happen. The reason that he's not um, uh, been sentenced in that way is because it happened such a long time ago. Well, I, I think I make. I, I believe that the presiding judge in his case did, did say very clearly that this person should never, the, the, the college pitchfork should not be released. Mm. So, in the, in a sense, the parole board are disrespecting the statements made by the judge in that particular case, yeah. which I think is uncalled for, yeah. to be absolutely honest. Well, we're going to speak to um, the, the MP involved in the case, uh, who is, of course, going to be uh, telling us why he believes that he thinks the campaign should be run uh, in order to stop this from happening. And I've mm. got a feeling uh, that it might well happen. Alberto Costa, who's the MP for South mm. Leicestershire, where it will happen, because he says barely a week goes by where he doesn't run into some member of the family or a friend mm. uh, who remembers the case itself. Oh, I think the parole board statement that the, the their heartfelt sympathies with the with the family and, and relatives of the victims uh, who were raped and murdered by Colin Pitchfork. If they if they were truly that protect if their if their instincts were that protective, and they really felt for those families, they would not reach the decision that they made in terms of approving his release. Yes, I think that's right. Let's talk about something completely different as well, Ricky, because I know you're a keen uh, follower of, of the oh, culture wars and the sporting uh, sort of nightmares that are currently going on. Football and cricket uh, seemingly mm. tying themselves up in knots. We've got the ECB, the England Cricket Board, uh, in turmoil because they've now found apparently another uh, cricketer oh. who might have made some inappropriate tweets uh, when he was 15, we haven't been told who that person is. But following on from the Ollie Robinson suspension, uh, we've got, mm. you know, they're now going to have to suspend anyone they find who's sent anything they don't like at any point in their lives, aren't they? Well, I think it's an abs absolutely remarkable decision. I would make the point that the tweets that were discovered, uh, posted by Ollie Robinson, which was a long, long time ago, they were of a racist and sexist nature. Yeah. Well, I felt, though, was that the suspension itself was over the top, mm. in my view. So I agree with the views of Oliver Dowden, the culture secretary, and his comments uh, have been supported by the prime minister. What I thought would have been quite, uh, I thought what would have been an effective response was to, uh, Ollie Robinson performed very well in the first test mm. against New Zealand. He picked up seven wickets. So he, he made a handy knock of 42 as well, I believe. With, with the bat yeah uh, it could have been the case you could have ordered ollie robinson to participate in anti-racism initiatives which are currently being run uh, by the ecb yeah. uh, in terms of you know heightening cricket engagement among um uh, among young girls and also doing that engagement in black british and Pakistani Muslim communities in Yorkshire, yeah. which is his county. Right. I think that would have been that, that sense of building in restorative justice over this case, mm. as opposed to this flat out suspension from international cricket. I felt that was over the top and I think they should have taken a, a, a slightly more considered approach.
Well, exactly right. Because, I mean, what's going to happen during the period of time when he's not playing? Uh, and what's going to happen when he comes back? You know, is he going to be judged to have been learned his lesson? Is he going to judge been judged to have had, you know, more intelligent judgment now than he had when he was 18? I mean, it's 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 all a bit pointless, isn't it? Well, I think one of his former uh, teammates, Moin Ashraf, made the point that, you know, this is someone he's, he's, he's spent time with Ollie Robinson, trained together, went to dinners together. He said categorically that this man is not a racist. Mm. And I think that when, when it comes to those kind of personal accounts of people who have been, you know, who have interacted with the individual in question, it's quite similar to the case of the teacher in Batley, where the Muslim neighbour was very uh, supportive of that person's yes. character. He said that he's, he's very generous, he gives presents during Eid. I think those, when it comes to these kind of situations, these personal accounts, uh, they really do matter because these are people that have actually mm. spent time with the person. And if they're expressing support um, and ultimately backing up their character, then I think that should be taken notice of. Absolutely right. And what are you making of the, the taking of the knee controversy with uh, Gareth Southgate insisting they're going to keep doing it today? Uh, England saying in the, uh, uh, in the sports pages that they're going to produce a video to show everybody uh, so that they don't actually boo the players. Well, I don't think that's going to be uh, able to do the trick, is it? Well, I make the point that some of the responses to the fans booing at the act of taking the knee, which is a political act. Some people are trying to make out as if it's not a political act. Yeah. It's a political gesture which is closely associated with the Black Lives Matter movement, mm. which in turn is associated with radical policy goals such as uh, starving police forces of much needed resources, the overthrowing of the British market economy and ultimately expressing support for direct uh, action as well, which very much goes against uh, Britain's liberal democratic uh, traditions. Yes. Now, but apparently, I, I think, apparently if, you, uh, if you don't support the taking of the knee, you must be a racist. Well, that's nonsense, because I, I don't think much of the gesture myself. And I watch <laughs> both friendlies um, against Austria and Romania. Yeah. I, I, I'll be honest, Mike, I, I don't necessarily have a problem with the act of taking the knee. That's what they want to do. That's what they've decided the team, the manager, uh, backroom staff, okay, fine. But ultimately, in, 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 you know, on, the, on the flip side, if paying fans who have paid a portion of their income to watch the football matches don't think much of that political gesture and would like to boo when that political gesture is being made, they are perfectly entitled to do so. Mm. And they shouldn't be accused of being racist no. because the reality of the matter is there have been a number of anti-racism initiatives in uh, British football including kick it out which commands considerable support to backing so what what is clear that for a number of football fans they made a very clear differentiation between those kind of campaigns which are very much focused on the bread and butter of rooting out discrimination in the in the game of football mm. And the taking of the knee, which is associated with the Black Lives Matter movement. And the reality of the matter is we have polling, which now shows that the majority of British people feel that BLM, through its political activities, have increased racial tensions in the UK. Mm. So the idea that you gesture, you know, you, you boo the gesture of taking a knee and that automatically makes you a racist. It's very simple-minded analysis. Well, it is, but it's the usual kind of uh, line up against uh, each other in various camps and, and criticise one because you're in the other. I mean, it, it struck me, and a couple of people have pointed this out on Twitter to me, going back to the cricketing situation, 
they're all the same people who are calling for Ollie Robinson to be fired mm. and suspended and, you know, never play for England again, are the very same people uh, who say that um, Shemima Begum was only a child, you know, when she went to ISIS uh, to join the camp, you know, uh, so she should be allowed to come home. It, it doesn't make uh, any sense, does it? Uh, well, I think my, my, my reaction says it all, <laughs> yeah. if I'm being honest. Uh, I think that I have no time for Ollie Robinson's tweets at all. But I think to compare this case with joining a genocidal death cult. Um, yeah, but that's OK, it, though, because she was, she was it's, it's only 16. suspect, to say the least. But she was it's, only 16, so it's fine, you know. So I'm not saying that Ollie Robinson shouldn't be punished. I mean, I made it very clear that one of the things that could have been done was that he, he, he could have been encouraged to participate in anti-racism initiatives, which heighten engagement with the game of cricket in communities, like black British communities, Pakistani Muslim communities, and also heighten female engagement with the sport. But I, 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 the reality of the matter is you can adopt a fairly hardline position against, Tom, uh, against Ollie Robinson without having to strike parallels with Shamima mm. Begum, mm. which is absolutely absurd. Shamima Begum ultimately went to join a genocidal t terrorist organisation, which is prescribed uh, in, in the UK, which has been guilty of the most you know, inhumane crimes. So I think making these kind of comparisons, it makes people look very silly. Mm, absolutely. Dr. Rakeem Hassan, thank you very much indeed. Independent expert in British Republic attitudes, giving us the benefit of his uh, wisdom on those subjects. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk to Dr. Simon Clark. Simon, how are you doing? Hi, Mike. Good to see you. Yeah, good, to, you, good to see you too. It does seem to be a bit of a mixed message this morning, doesn't it? You know, on the one hand, we've got, you know, as I said earlier, a downbeat message from uh, from Messrs Witty and Valance is the only kind of message they can really give. I don't think I've ever seen them being upbeat about anything. But according to uh, the health secretary, Matt Hancock, you know, the jabs are working. Uh, intensive care admissions are very much down. Death rates are very much down. The only thing that seems to be up is the actual infection number which, if it's not being taken terribly seriously, it's not affecting people terribly badly, is not that much to worry about, is it? Well, um, it, like everything else, it depends. So let's wind our, the clock back to, well, just under a year ago, sort of August last year, and there were a lot of younger people getting infected with, with uh, various forms of the virus uh, and not going to hospital. And then it was a few months later that the hospitalizations and the uh, critical care admissions started to take off again. Mm. So that's what we've got to be conscious of. Yeah. Uh, I take the, I'm of the opinion that we need to, you know, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. And we need to keep an eye on these things and not bury our heads in the sand, but be ready to react to them if and when these bad things happen. So I would argue that we need to keep an eye on things. Um, but uh, we, we, we need to... Uh, we need to move on. Well, exactly. And if it would appear to be the case, as Matt Hancock has said, that the people who are being admitted to hospital are those who have not actually been vaccinated by and large, then it's pretty obvious why they're being admitted to hospital, isn't it? Yeah, well, no, not necessarily. We need to know who has and who hasn't been admitted to hospital um, and uh, what their sort of demographics and profile is. I mean, it might be the case that uh, they, they were admitted to hospital haven't been vaccinated because they're younger people. Um, and, of course, younger people have, tend to have uh, jobs and lifestyles that open them, so open them up to infection. Um, so that might be a possibility. It might not be, of course. I mean, everything might be all right. Hmm. But I, I do tend to take these sort of sunshine and smiles lines from, uh, from the Department of Health and the Secretary of State with a, a 
pinch of salt. Yes. Well, let me read you some stats that I've got here from the Intensive Care National Audio and Research Centre, uh, which says basically that out of 3,394 patients admitted to hospital in May, only around 5% needed intensive care, whereas at the peak, that was 72%. So that's a very encouraging number, it seems to me. Um, and uh, intensive care admissions were due to COVID, uh, 72% rather than 20% um, at the moment. It also says the average age of those admitted has fallen by around 10 years from approximately 60 to 50, basically. Um, yeah. And so, yes, they are a bit younger, but they're not. I mean, it, it doesn't seem that difficult to gain these, these, these pieces of information, does it? I mean, if, if, if Matt Hancock says nearly everyone who's been admitted to hospital uh, because of the Indian variant... Um, or the Delta variant, whatever you wish to call it, uh, has not been vaccinated at all, then that's a pretty good indicator, isn't it? Yeah, but why haven't they been vaccinated? That's the, that's the big question. Oh, you're absolutely right. Maybe that, uh, that they're older people. Maybe they just don't risk. want to be vaccinated. Yeah, absolutely right. The simple answer to this is that we don't know. And, uh, you know, we have had our fingers burnt with, uh, like I say, the Sunshine and Smiles Act for when a few weeks down the line things turn out not to be so... Uh, so good, but I hope desperately that this is all all right, and I'm being unduly pessimistic. Mm. But um, it's not like you, Simon. Out. You're you're normally <laughs> the one the one we get on to cheer everybody up. I mean, the thing about what went wrong before, and I would say possibly September when everyone thought it had gone away, possibly December when they got the Kent variant in. You know, both of those cases, both of those times of the year were not really times when we had mass vaccination, whereas we do now. So I, I think that makes a big difference as well, doesn't it? I, I can't deny that, Mike. You're absolutely right. So, you know, I mean, as you're watching from afar, um, and, and I know that you're going to come at this from a medical perspective rather than perhaps yep. a social perspective, but, I mean, a lot of people are saying, oh, another two weeks, what's the difference? Well, another two weeks is a big difference to a lot of, um, you know, hospitality businesses, a lot of other businesses that still can't really do what they do to make any money. So, you know, and, and we, I mean, I'm my problem and my worry about june the 21st is if the government sort of fails to keep that promise despite making everybody come back from portugal early you know that will just be the beginning of yet another series of postponements that they think they can keep doing uh yeah i quite agree two weeks is is uh, worth having in your life you know you don't want to waste two weeks and personally i can feel the, the sands of time of one's life uh, going through the the, the glass bell mm. um I, I, like you i heard you say earlier you thought there would still be some restrictions in place yeah. going over the summer, and we can sort of guess what those might be, but it is just guesswork. Now, I completely agree. I, I don't think that uh, on June the 21st, unfortunately, that they will just throw everything off. Right. Um, we'll see what they do. But, yeah. um, I mean, I, I think now, because they've become sort of experts in public behaviour because of all these sage people that they talk to every single day, my sense is that they're trying to kind of convince us that there isn't going to be this sort of let's take off all the shackles, let's take off the blindfold, let's undo the manacles, you know, and we'll all be back to normal. They don't want us to think that anymore. They want us to think that, you know, something might happen, but it might not be as good. Yeah, a bit of expectation management. Yeah. And I'm getting a bit fed up with being manipulated, frankly, by their sort of propaganda machine. You know, I'd rather they just told us the truth. I think we can uh, handle yeah. it. But uh, they obviously think that uh, we can't handle the truth. Well, they too, do. Uh, They've obviously seen a few good men. Well, I can handle the truth. I'm quite happy to, to uh, you know, put it out there for them on their behalf. But I just worry that, you know, sending two, two sort of mixed messages out at the same time is very confusing to people. Yeah, we do seem to be getting different messages from different parts of government. And I don't know whether that's deliberate or people mm. just being dis disorganised. But yeah. uh, 
We'll find out next Monday. Yeah. And we're also, I mean, I'm listening to Julie Hartley Brewer talking to George Eustace this morning, government minister, about the travel restrictions. And, and in Europe, for example, if you've had two jabs, they're more than happy for you to visit their country. Um, she said to him, um, if we're being cautious because we're not doing that, does that mean that they're in some way being reckless? And they're not being reckless, are they? You know, if you've had two jabs, surely to goodness, the point of having them is so that you could do most things without fear or favour. No, they're not being reckless. Um, it's the whole point of things. Uh, but somebody in government has obviously decided that they need to be more cautious. Yeah. And that's just where we are. Right. Yeah, I know. But caution is one thing for some groups of people, but is certainly not cautious for other groups of people. I mean, I had a guy ring me this morning uh, who's got three different people that he knows who have been diagnosed with stage four cancer, all of whom should have been diagnosed last year and all of whom have been told by an oncologist that he should have seen them last year, but they weren't referred. So, I mean, you know, that doesn't sound like cautious to me. No, and as somebody who's, who has been diagnosed with stage three, I can assure you that uh, time is desperately of the essence when you're uh, in that situation yeah. and it's desperately worrying when you're that ill. Mm. So, you know, we really do need to, to be sensible about how we go forward with stuff like that yeah. and make sure and do it quickly. But that's the thing. And I, I was saying earlier, it's almost as though there's this kind of obsession with COVID. You know, like I said, I mean, this morning's figures, 1,408 deaths, which is the average rate of daily deaths um, from all causes in England and Wales, week 20. And one of those deaths is from COVID. So 1,407 of all the other deaths are from something else. Yeah, but if you take cancer, for example, it's not infectious and it's not going to explode in numbers that quickly. Uh, it would accumulate, sadly. Um, what we don't need is another explosion in numbers. And I think that is unlikely. We also need not to be quite so blasé about people going into hospital with it. Because if we do that, and, and not going into intensive care, because if we do that, then we won't be able to clear the backlog of cancer patients or people waiting for non-immediately essential uh, uh, operations and mm. stuff like that. Yeah. So it will be handled very carefully. Well, indeed. But my worry again on that front is that I've heard arguments being made by, by ministers who say, well, we must make sure that the NHS isn't overwhelmed by people who have been waiting for a long time to be seen and who are now sort of rushing to hospital. Well, isn't that what hospitals for? It's for treating people who aren't very well, isn't it? Absolutely. And uh, that's over to them to make sure that hospitals are segregated in a way that can handle um, routine operations yeah. to cancer. I mean, I don't, I don't see any sign whatsoever, Simon, that the NHS has learned any lessons from this pandemic whatsoever. They're still saying all well, the think, same. They're still saying all the same things. They're still saying, "Oh well, we might be overwhelmed. We don't want to be overrun. We haven't got enough staff. We haven't got enough beds." Well, isn't, why isn't somebody fixing that? I quite agree, and that's for the ministers to do. I think there are trusts that are doing it quite well, and some really good examples of best practice have been. Uh, have been in existence in the past year and a bit, but they don't appear to be widely taken up. And why do you think that is? Um, I imagine that there's not enough pressure from the top, and by the top I mean the ministers. That's their job. Mm. Well, exactly, because if everyone's worried about the NHS all the time, and if we're worried about saving the NHS, then surely we need to improve the NHS so that it's not in peril every single winter, because every single winter we get the same story. Yeah, absolutely we do. Um, it's usually flu, um, and that, that pressure needs not to be there. Unfortunately, I think that means uh, uh, a lot more money being spent on it. 
Well, I'm not sure it does, actually, because every time they put more money into it, it just seems to disappear like a great big black hole. I mean, what it needs to be, for me, is, is, is reformed in a way so that there's not so many people in the NHS doing jobs that don't need to be done, so that there's most of the, the workload is given to, and the money is actually given to frontline medicine. Yeah, but people will always find a way to uh, to spend your money, won't they? Exactly, especially when they just think they can get more when they need it, you know? Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, what are you looking at around the world, Simon, when you see uh, what's going on elsewhere? Because obviously India seems to be much better off now than it was um, in terms of other countries around Europe. Portugal, despite the fact that uh, we're told their case numbers are going up, is in pretty good order. And Spain is in pretty good order. What, do you, what are you seeing? If you look further afield or farther afield, you'll, you'll see some... Um, problems uh, certainly the far east japan has had problems you don't normally expect a country like japan to, to struggle with stuff like this mm. but they haven't got a good they have of course got the olympics coming up and they haven't really got going with their vaccinations yet neither curiously of the australians and the kiwis and i heard the other day that the the, the new zealand uh is a health minister there or somebody senior within their health service had advised people that to expect restrictions to be put in place on them for the next three to five years really Blimey. Yep. I thought that was supposed to be the jewel in the crown of how to deal with uh, coronavirus, New Zealand. Well, it is, it is but of course... Well, it's not if they keep a lockdown for five years. Exactly. If they keep, all they need to do is open their borders and they can be in trouble. Yeah. And that is the problem, isn't it? So shut the borders. And I, mean, I suppose in that sense, I mean, I've never quite understood the policy on, on borders. I think you and I have spoken about it before, where you yep. can make out that you're shutting the borders, but you're not really. Um, because that's never really been the case for us. And I suppose the danger of doing it really properly, like they have done in Australia, is that as soon as you open them, you know, away you go again, because they've locked down, I think, in Melbourne again, haven't they? Yes, I believe so. Lockdowns, border closing, they, unless you unless you close things for a very long time, then uh, things are just going to come back. Mm. Yeah, but then that's the political decision that has to be made, isn't it? Let it come back, then deal with it in whatever way you wish to deal with it. They, they have to uh, find a way of uh, trying to minimise the uh, effects of it coming back. Let's hope they do it in this country with the vaccine. Let's hope that succeeds. Yes, well, let's hope so. Simon, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Dr Simon Clark, virology expert, microbiologist at the University of Reading. It seems to me um, that, you know, there are two ways of dealing with this, right? There is the cautious way of dealing with it, which is not actually good for most people, um, but may be good for those people who are vulnerable, but who are meant to have been protected already. I don't know what the problem is here. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, we've been talking about this story throughout the show this morning because I was shocked to hear this news yesterday uh, when it broke after my show had finished in the afternoon um, that the idea uh, of a murderer not just a murderer of any kind of description, but a double murderer, Colin Pitchfork, who raped and strangled two 15-year-olds in sadistic attacks, two separate sadistic attacks in the 1980s, is being considered not just for parole, but is being considered for release on the basis that the people who run the parole board think that he has kind of rehabilitated himself. And when you find out what it was that he did all those years ago, uh, back up in uh, Leicester, you wonder what on earth these people are thinking. Alberto Costa, Conservative MP for South Leicestershire and Parliamentary Private Secretary to the Attorney General, uh, joins us now. Alberto, very good afternoon to you. 
Good afternoon, Mike, and thank you for having me as ever on your excellent programme. It's always a pleasure to come on here. You're very kind, Alberto. I saw you on TV yesterday and I thought we must get Alberto on because we like to get you on anyway. But in this particular case, you're the local MP for this area where these dreadful murders happen. Um, and you obviously feel quite strongly about it, not least because you say um, a lot of people still talk about these murders in your mm. neck of the woods. And a lot of people remember the family well uh, and remember the girls, too. That's right. Well, let's not forget, let's put the names to the victims. It was Linda and Don who tragically were brutally raped and callously murdered by this psychopath mm. pitchfork, who, let's not forget, was convicted on the basis of DNA evidence. He tried to evade capture of this horrid individual. Mm. And look, Mike, let me say at the very outset, I'm not the type of guy that believes in locking people up and throwing key away. We've all watched the Shawshank Redemption. We've all seen that Morgan Freeman character, etc. But I do believe that there are some crimes that are so egregious, so barbaric, that it is right to ask, is it ever proper to release somebody? And I have to say, I must confess, I'm appalled at the decision of the parole board. They, they're not considering releasing him. They've decided to release him. The decision has been made. Yeah. And what happens now, Mike, is that following very welcome rule changes that I and other MPs have campaigned for, following the John Warboys debacle, you remember that? Well, I mean, I couldn't believe the John Warboys debacle at the time because I think I seem to remember um, that um, that Mr Gork, the then Attorney General, refused to order a judicial review and it was down to two very brave young women, um, I don't know whether we want to name those people, but who, who had been victims of Warboys to actually stop it from happening. Well, it's right to say that th there was a judicial review process and once that judicial review process found that the parole board had erred um, in uh, allowing the release of John Warboys, the government stepped in rightly and changed the rules. And the rules were brought in in July 2019. And what those rules say, and I think it's really important for listeners because listeners of your programme have a role. Uh, we have 21 days from yesterday's date to write to the Secretary of State for Justice and ask him to apply to the parole board to reconsider their decision. Mm. Any member of the public can do it. So, Mike, I'm pleading, I'm putting out this plea to you and your listeners, of which you've got many, to email, to write to the Secretary of State for Justice and ask him to apply to the parole board to reconsider the decision. So yes. we've got this 21-day window in which to do it. Uh, so we have to move things quickly. And it will be up to the Secretary of State then for justice to decide whether he wants to apply to the parole board without the need to go to judicial review, without the need to go to courts, to ask the, the parole board itself to reconsider this appalling decision that they've made. Mm. If we don't get a reconsideration after the 21 days, then the provisional decision made yesterday becomes a final decision and Pitchfork will be released. Yes. And the families, obviously, are terribly, terribly distraught about the prospect of that. He's already been let out, apparently, on several day releases in order to acclimatise himself with going back out into the real world. He's been shopping. Uh, we're told that he's made exceptional progress, whatever that means. But what we also know, Alberto, about some of these depraved murderers and killers is that they're very good at deception. You know, they can fool lots of people. John Warboy's fooled the parole board last time around and yet it revealed it was revealed that he still had the names and addresses of all of his victims and they were still willing to let him out so so mike i'm not a psychologist 
and I'm not going to pine on whether he's been rehabilitated or not, because quite frankly, I don't care. What I'm proposing is that there are crimes that are so appalling that even if somebody's been rehabilitated in prison, that they should not be released, even if they're not a danger to the public. And actually, we have changed the law. If Pitchfork had committed just one of those crimes, not two, but one of those crimes today, it is highly likely he'd be given a whole life tariff. And what that would mean is that it'd be more than likely he would serve the whole of his natural life in prison, whether he's rehabilitated or not. So actually, I don't think this is a case of they're still dangerous, they need to be rehabilitated. I think that they've committed such awful crimes that the message must be sent out to the public, to society, that if you commit these crimes, you lose all your liberty for the rest of your natural life. Also, because he's now been identified, uh, pictures of him have appeared uh, in newspapers today. Presumably, if he is released, will he be released into some kind of protection? Will he be released into uh, some kind of new identity scheme? I mean, how will that work? Well, this is, this is the repugnant nature of it all. So the parole board that it pains, understandably, to point out that there's going to be a whole series of conditions. Conditions, submissions, he's been given his freedom. Mm. That's the bottom line. Yes, you'll have to wear a tag. Yes, you'll have to report uh, into various probation officers. Yes, there'll be an area which you won't be allowed to visit near where the crime scene took place. But that mm. doesn't stop him going on the M1, very close to where he committed those crimes, yeah. for example. Yes, you'll be given a new identity at our expense. Yes, to all those things. Quite frankly, the only shops I would like to see him shop in is a puck shop in a high-security prison. Yes, exactly right. You're absolutely right, Alberto. It's so refreshing to hear people like you in positions that you are in talking like this because you're talking for the, the for the rest of this country, for the people who do not wish to live next door to somebody who murdered two 15-year-old girls, who do not wish to see this guy walking down the street. You know, it's as simple as that. I don't care what sort of, you know, liberal world that the parole board seems to want to live in, that everybody deserves a second chance. This guy does not deserve a second chance. I'm sorry. I totally agree. And as I say, have he committed his crimes to these heinous crimes of raping teenage girls and murdering them? There's no way on earth he'd be released. So I'm pleading, and I'm, again, I'm saying this, Mike, to your listeners, please write or email to the Secretary of State for Justice and request that he apply to the parole board for reconsideration of this youth. I, I campaigned hard for those parole board changes yeah. after the war boy situation. So we've got these rules. It's up to your listeners. It's up to members of the public to write to the Secretary of State for Justice and demand that he apply to the parole board for reconsideration. Yes, we'll certainly encourage everybody to do that, Alberto. Um, let me just ask you finally, before you go, about PC Wayne Cousins today um, admitting in the uh, Old Bailey uh, that he was responsible for Sarah Everard's death, pleaded guilty to kidnap and rape as well. Um, he has not yet been asked to make a plea uh, on the murder case, but uh, another awful, awful story. Um, I guess the family can be spared now hopefully, uh, any kind of long, drawn-out trial. So, Mike, I'm not going to pass comment for the simple reason. I'm, I make the law as an MP, um, and I shouldn't get involved in criminal cases when they're ongoing. I'll certainly come back onto your programme after uh, the, the man's been sentenced, and we can discuss it then. Mm. But I respect that the judiciary are independent of the legislature, and that's the way it should be in a free democratic country. But I certainly do have a view, and I will express it once the judiciary have ruled in this matter. Absolutely fine. No problem at all. Alberto, thank you very much indeed. Alberto Costa, MP, uh, very, very worked up about the case of Pitchfork, this murderer, murderous, notorious paedophile 
Colin Pitchfork, who, who, who murdered Dawn Ashworth um, and, of course, um, also murdered um, Linda Mann as well. Uh, strangled them, raped them. Absolutely dreadful. Ghastly man, ghastly individual. Should not be let out, should not be given a second chance, should not even really be uh, in position for the parole board to do anything with. Absolutely shocking state of affairs. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.